I'm so glad to be back. It's been gone a lot lately. Um, For those of you who don't know, um, we have been traveling, um, sharing with God, sharing with other people what God shared with us about um, sustainable discipleship, which is just really, we had to stick a name on it for this really great movement that God started with us because we were just trying to fix ourselves, right? Just trying to figure out how to get more transformed, how to get deeper with the Lord, and not just do church, right? And of course, you guys, if you've been around for a while, you know it has been incredible for the life of our church, for me personally, for my kids, for, um, gosh, pretty much everybody who's come in contact. And so I guess it's like, God, I've been gone for like six out of the last eight weeks, off and on, thank gosh, and thanks to Evan, yes, uh, who's been teaching, yeah. So he's been, he's been allowing us to, to be able to do this kind of travel, but I'm so uh, super, super glad. When, when I'm not here, Evan's been teaching on what Evan's been teaching on. I, I don't really know what it is. I keep hearing, like, that was good, and I learned, so that's great. Um, when I'm here, I've been teaching um, just on psalms and looking at different psalms. And for me, that's very counterintuitive because if you'd asked me up until today, I would have said... The only time psalms really resonate with me is when things are going bad. <laughs> like, you know, they're great if you're in a hard time and you go read the psalms. There's all kinds of encouragement, right? Because like well over half, probably three quarters of them are written from this place of like desperation or, or recovery. But a friend of mine invited me to teach along with him. And he, the way he named the series was called The Songs That Jesus Sang. And his, the argument was this, is that Jesus clearly was well-studied and, and knew. It, everybody knew these songs. They, we read them as a part of the Bible, but they're actually, it's a hymn. It's like a mini hymnal or a mini songbook right there in the middle of our Bible. All of them are songs, songs that got sung at, at just different times. You know? So um, the first one we looked at was Psalm 139, and it was just like, when it's time to move forward. And then we looked at Psalm 51, and it was kind of like, uh, at your worst moment. And, it, and all of them kind of chart this path out, both of them written by David, chart this path out. So if you want to listen to those, I think they're at uh, Three Taverns Church. I think Facebook is our name, at Three Taverns Church, and you can catch them there. Um, today, I, want to, I just want to talk about, um, like, Psalm 30. Um, and before I tell you really what the title is, I guess I got to kind of get you there, okay? So the, I got to tell you, the, the title is, <laughs> When You're Knackered. So if you're from England, then you get that. Um, I, so I just got back from doing a workshop in England, four churches, uh, looks like they'll probably start like somewhere, probably 30, 40 groups by the time they're done, discipleship groups, which is incredible because it's inside the Church of England, and so if you know anything about the Church of England, it's a much more high church, and it was just, I mean, it was just an incredible time, and um, I, the, London was cool, the workshop was incredible to see God move, um, and it, it's just neat to see what God's doing around the world with this whole discipleship stuff. But England was fun, too. Um, I learned all kinds of new words, uh, like manic. I love that. We use manic, but that's like a diagnosis of a psychological disorder. Um, Their manic lines up with our word crazy, but in the sense of there's just a ton going on. And so it's just weird for them to say it's it's a manic day. I found that very comforting for me because half my life I feel manic, right? Just, ah, okay. Tim hated this word. I love this word. Tim, Tim and Bobby Joe got to travel with to do the workshop. Um, I, they, instead of saying you rent something, you hire it. 
And I like that. Like, so it's like I'm hiring a little employee, a tool, to go do a job, and then I, then I put the little employee back. I lay the, the employee off. So I don't know. I like that one. I love Shattered. That was, I never heard that one. Has you guys heard Shattered? Like, that was great. So um, John, our host there, is the vicar or the pastor of the uh, St. Peter's Church in Harrow, uh, London. And so the first day we're there, he picks me up, like, at 6 at the airport. I'm like, dude, I can catch a train. I can do whatever. I don't you get early. And he's like, oh, no, we're up, like, at 5. Which He's got two twins. Uh, two twins? I guess that would make sense, right? So he has twin one-year-olds. And, um, and then he has a four-year-old, Evan, and, and apparently they don't sleep, and they get up early and everything else. So he arrives at the airport, and I was like, how's your day going? And he said, I'm shattered. And I was like, okay. Like, that sounds pretty critical, like, right? Like, I'm shattered. And he goes, no. And he goes, hey, let me explain. He goes, uh, uh, just, uh, I, he goes I, I, there's just a lot going on. Like, I, there's a lot going on. I've been up. I've been juggling kids. I'm just shattered. And I was like, I could probably adopt this word. How many of y'all like that? Like, you know, that everything's going at home and you're just like, how's it going? And you're like, I'm just, I'm shattered, right? And so I like that one. Uh, food, new foods, awesome foods. Brown sauce, anybody had that? Yeah, it's like brown ketchup. It's incredible. Uh, he took me, this is my welcome meal because it was really early in the morning and he just wanted to talk and we were gonna hang out for the day. So he took me to McDonald's. He goes, at least it'll be something familiar to you. And I was thinking, like, clearly you don't know me. I'm a foodie. Take me somewhere else. But we went to McDonald's. Um, they have a supersized Egg McMuffin, just so you know. It's incredible. So you, get, you don't just get the egg and the cheese. You get, like, bacon and this kind of sausage stuff and everything. And then the, the little kiosk was, like, with brown sauce or without. Well, because I'm Doug, I just said, with brown sauce, right? What could go wrong? It uh, turns out brown sauce is incredible, and you can get it pretty much on anything on the planet, and it's, it's, it's really great. I don't know how to explain it. Eggs on toast was another of my favorite. Yeah, so you've had, so eggs on toast. I know nothing about eggs on toast. You can order anything on toast, and then you have to tell them whether you really want toast or not. Never really understood that. Um, beans with breakfast was great for me. Very, very, very bad for people sitting on the front row of the workshop. But um, yeah, baked beans with eggs and sausage. There was a diner across the street called the Sunshine Cafe. Um, I went in. I fell in love with it. I ate there every moment that I could because you got French fries and baked beans and eggs and sausage for breakfast. So I just loaded up every single day. Amber and I, our favorite meal, I think, would, would be... Uh, Amber got to fly over and join me so we could spend our anniversary in a couple days in London, which was really, really cool. And so um, we had um, steak and huh? steak and Tanglefoot pie. Anybody heard of it? Tanglefoot apparently is a well-famous uh, English beer. All I know is that what came out was like the coolest stew inside of a pastry on top of mashed potatoes. And it came on like the right day. Like I just needed comfort food. And I ate that. And I didn't ever want to leave. I really thought like we could be there. And then we, Turin, Turin, something like that. Ham and Pete. It was like spam on steroids. Um, no, it was good. It was good. So I ate my way through London. Big deal. And, and then we get to the word knackered. Because it's, it, it, it take away my favorite, my favorite term... <clears throat> I think it was like day two or three, and John came, or I got there, and he just looked, 
he looked beyond shattered, but I was like, so you look really tired, are you shattered? I was trying to be cool and use my new English word, right? <laughs> are you shattered? He said, no, not shattered, I'm knackered. I just let it go, you know, acted like I knew what I was doing. And later on, I was like, I was trying to tell Amber about it. John was there, we, were, we walk everywhere. So um, John and his wife, Natalie, and Amber and I were walking somewhere to get food or something through a neighborhood. And I was telling Amber, you know, about this word knackered and, and this and that. And then he explained it to me that a knackered yard is where this comes from. Does anybody know this? Like, so a knackered yard is where you take old, worn-out horses and they, they go there to die and become glue. So it was the knacker's yard. So you would take your horse to the knacker's yard. And then later on, when there weren't really horses anymore, they would still come along in the carriages. And anything that you had that was broken or whatever, once a week, you would put it out in front of your house. And the knacker's wagon would come by, pick it up, and take that. So it became the junk yard, the things that are worn out, exhausted, absolutely done. And so that's what knackers mean, knackered means. So. I'm knackered. I'm done. At the bottom, the pit, the end of everything for me, I'm just, I'm there. I am absolutely knackered, right? I'm done. So um, when I got a hold of this phrase, all of a sudden I realized that over the last six out of eight weeks, I'm in town for a couple days, or I'm in town, we do a workshop, then I leave, and I've been going somewhere else. It's been a great opportunity to serve God, but I'm, I'm absolutely knackered. Like, I'm just done. I'm like at the, you know what I'm saying? Like, you're just at the bottom, and you're just exhausted, and you're done. You're, you're beyond shattered. You're beyond tired. You're beyond just a lot going on or being manic. It's just, you're really absolutely at that point where you just go, I, almost hopeless. Anybody ever know that feeling? Okay, I got one. Nobody else? Like that, yeah, in the back. It's just like that, just totally burnout, we might say. There. Okay, so if you've ever felt that way, school, life, family, work, whatever it is, then today's a good day for you because there's a psalm about this, and it's Psalm 30. And so today what we're going to talk about is when you're knackered. <laughs> like, when you're at that point, and you're just worn out, and you're tired, and you're beat, and you're burnt out, what do you do? In Psalm 30, um, the interesting thing about this psalm is that David actually wrote this psalm. It, it doesn't make sense. I, I can't process it. But he wrote this psalm, this song, to be sung at the dedication of the temple. So he wrote it ahead of time. Because he thought he was going to be able to bring, you know, the ark back and build the temple and all. And David actually didn't get to do that. But he wrote this song to be sung at the dedication of the temple. And the interesting thing for me about it was when he wrote this song, if you just read it, you would never know. It doesn't say anything about, oh, bless the temple. It doesn't. It just talks about him and him being knackered, him being totally at the bottom. And then God rescuing him. When he actually wrote this song, he wrote it after a tremendous sin. Like there's a couple big sins that David did. The cool part, cool part about this is that David was a man after God's own heart and he still messed up. So there's hope for all of us. Okay? But he, he always seemed to be able to get it figured out. And Psalm 30 is all about him getting it figured out yet again. This wasn't the big sin with Bathsheba. 
this was the sin of counting people. So if you're really into Bible or you've been around a long time or you love reading the Old Testament, you may know this. But for those of you who don't, there was this point in David's life where he looked at his army commanders and said, go out and count the armies. Number them. That's, what they, that's a biblical term. But go count them. He got in a lot of trouble with God for doing this. And one of the first questions, if you're just new to the Bible and you're reading through, you're like, why? he's just counting people. Like, why did he get in trouble? Why? Why in the world were you in trouble for counting the troops? And, and it's interesting because if you, if you look at this, it wasn't so much the counting, it's the attitude that David had. David was basically going and saying, well, it would be like in, maybe in church world today, we've got 1,000 people, we've got 1,500 people. Like, if you ever go to a pastor's gig, it's like a locker room, right? <laughs> like, so how big is your church? Well, we have 500 people. And you want to kind of sneak in and see, did they really have 500? Like, it's like, I got 500. Does that mean 500 who came ever? 500 on roll, 500 on a Sunday, right? Anybody who's led a church, you know this, right? It's just, it, it's like a fish story, fish tales, whatever, but a lot of times we find our confidence in that. Well, David, um, he was just tempted to see what he owned. And that was the interesting part about this because there was only one other time really where God ever said, count the people. And he said, count my people. This is very important how important a little word can be. But God actually told Moses at one point, count my people and redeem my people. Well, David didn't count God's people. David went out to count David's people. And that was a critical error. He was becoming self-confident, self-reliant. He was, he was looking at what he had done, not what God had done. And there's a lot more to that story, but the bottom line is, is that he got in a lot of trouble with God for it. And God's anger was moved against him. And God, back then, the Holy Spirit didn't really reside in people. He he, he would talk to prophets who would then, and, and just like every time David had a big sin, God sent a prophet. And the prophet came to David and he said, you know, basically this is it. So this is the discipline. And, and David actually got to pick his own discipline. I thought that was funny. I remember my mom doing that. Do you, you ever try this as a parent? You look at him and go, you pick your own punishment, right? Well, I was that kid who would overpunish myself. My brother would underpunish himself. I never learned. So they would go like, you know, pick your own punishment. I'm like, oh, I should never eat food again or something, you know. And, and, and I was just over, but David, David looked at, at the things and anyway, he picks his punishment. The, the end of all this is there was a discipline, a plague was set upon the land. 70,000 people died from the plague and it, it, before David just begged God for mercy and God looked down and said, enough's enough and the plague stopped. And, and if you're thinking, Gosh, well, why did they have to pay for David's sin? David actually asked that same question to God in, in, in Chronicles. He was like, why? But, but the point is, is that it wasn't just David's sin. The whole nation had wandered away. And that was the impetus for the counting. God's anger. He was angry with his people because they kind of wandered away. So, so in this moment of David's self-reliance, in this moment of him counting and, and taking all this stuff on, this song is entirely about the recovery from that. It's the recovery from that. And so God could have let David fall to the other enemy armies. That was an option. God could have let them have a famine on the land. God could have done so many things, but 
God didn't. And, and David gets this. David sings in verse 1. This is what he sings. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. So even though I was wrong, you didn't let me fall to the hands of my enemies. You gave me a way out. It could have been worse. It could have been worse. When, when I look at this psalm, this, 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 it's, it's, he's dedicated, it's for the dedication of a temple. And it's really interesting because it's like David's whole journey was to try to get this temple built. But when I look at this psalm, I see two just like really cool, interesting things. I love the way David talks about his life. I just love it. I love how honest he is. So every time David makes a big guffaw, a big stumble, an overt sin, David always is ready to own up to it. As soon as he's aware of it, David doesn't hide it. Like, it's okay, he's just like, he becomes self-aware and he owns it. And then the second thing is, is David never despises discipline. So David realizes that God's discipline is to guide and correct his people, including David. So in a weird way, once David becomes self-aware that he's had an issue, he's willing to, to, to live with the discipline because he knows that God's discipline works to guide him back, to fix him. So it's not just punishment for him. He sees it as a discipline. And I hope as a parent, if you're a parent, you get this. There is a big difference between reaching out in emotion or in judgment and punishing your children versus disciplining them. Disciplining guides us to a new path. There may be consequences. It may feel like punishment, but it guides to a new path. If, if, if you're a parent, I urge you to read at Proverbs. I urge you to, get to dive into the Bible because biblical, godly discipline is all about correction. And it, 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 it's like the punishment fits the crime. It has a purpose to guide. So the other thing in that, He's willing to accept the discipline. David always cries out for mercy. And I just love how real that is. This is a guy that God himself describes as a man after God's own heart. He gets in trouble. He makes an error. He sins. And then God's discipline comes, and he's willing to accept that discipline. But he's also willing to know that God is merciful, loving, and kind. And he'll always, even if he doesn't get it, he always asks for a way out. And you'll see that in the psalm. He says, have mercy on me. Heal me. Like, in other words, if I don't have to go through this, I'd rather not. But if I have to, I get it. I own it. It's mine. Now, how much a better place would this world be if when people made a mistake, instead of trying to cover up, lie, blame other people, we would all just, all of us, say, I'm going to own this. I'll take the consequences. But if I don't have to, and how much better would it be if sometimes we extended a little mercy? A good friend of mine was praying for just all the conflict that's going on in the world, and he was praying with his church, and I heard him, and it, it, it totally amazed me. His prayer was this, let both sides stop shooting. He didn't even address right or wrong or anything. He was just praying for what? Mercy. Let's just stop. Everybody just stop. So David realizes that God needs to correct him, right? And a nation is what God's actually doing too because they become too confident in their own power. And this happened again and again with the people of God. Hey, by the way, we are the people of God. This is so easy to do. 
we get going, God, God equips us, we get smart, he blesses us, and then we go off and we do it on our own power, in our own way, and we start thinking it's our church, our people, our family, you know what I mean? Like, it's so easy. This is where David sees his sin. It's in verses six to seven, it says this. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm and the kingdom, his household, his life. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. And so he, he actually describes his error in this beautiful, poetic way. And what he says is this, the moment that I chose to do this on my own, the moment I chose to say, this is mine, God's face turned away. And David found himself dismayed. I love that word. Still, David is not done. He's recognizing his sin. He cries out for mercy in verse 8. He says this, To you, Lord, I called to the Lord. I cried for mercy. And just in case, if you've been around here, I know you've heard this a thousand times, but in case somebody hasn't, right? Grace is getting something that you what? Don't deserve. Like grace and favor and strength from the Lord, salvation from the Lord, having his spirit live within us, that it all comes by his grace. These are not things that we deserve. Mercy, on the other hand, is not getting something you do deserve. And so David's like, I get it. This correction, I get the discipline, but I'm still going to say to you, have mercy on me. Maybe the discipline's not going to go away, but in the middle of it, have mercy on me. Don't give me more than I can bear. Don't give me. He cries out to his God, whom he's offended, and asks for mercy. And his argument for that mercy is found in verses 9 to 10. What is gained, God? If I'm silenced, if I go down to the pit, but the pit, by the way, for them was Sheol. He's using poetic language here, but it's the place of death. What good is it if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear me, Lord, here we go again, and be what? Merciful to me. Lord, be my help. So even though he's in the middle of discipline, even though he's in the middle of this aware moment of total conviction that he's messed up, he's like, you see his heart coming through? Like, if I die, who's going to tell of your greatness? Well, maybe other people would, but you get his idea. Like, if this is the end of me, I don't want it to end this way. Be my help. Deep down inside, David still wants to be like a light to the world. He wants to proclaim the goodness of his God. Even though he's ignored him or walked away for a moment or overtly sinned, the heart, this is why God again and again says that David has a heart after God, that David is a godly man. Because even when he errs, David's desire is to what? To sing the praises of his God. In the middle of discipline, he's willing to say, we deserve this, I deserve this. Deliver me. And let me sing your praises, the praises of the one who disciplines me, the praises of the one who delivers me. And don't forget what he said before. When I'm with you, you make my mountain, what? Strong. And when not, my heart is dismayed. I'm dismayed. Even that is praise because it's saying what? 
When God is with us, we're good. And when, when he's not with us, when we offend him, it's not good. You get it? So it, it, David's just constantly extolling. He understands his relationship to God, that God loves him and cares for him and chose him, and that's awesome. But he understands that God is God. And even in the middle of discipline, he cries out to him. But I wonder, like, do you see, like, all of these little ties that go together? There's, there's, there's a weaving, as it were, as David talks to God. What I learned from that is this. The first thing that I need to do when I'm self-knackered, I'm extending the word. When I'm burnt out, I'm at the pit, and it's because of me, it's my fault. That the first thing that I need to do is to turn back to him. David, when he's in this moment, wants God to what? Provide for him. He wants to be in God's presence. He wants God's protection. And he realizes that all of that comes by him getting back to God. And what I see when I look at this is this point at which I, if I'm in this because I did it, the very first thing that I need to do is own it. I just need to own it. I need to own that I'm relying on myself. I need to own that I did this. And quite frankly, when I'm really burnt out, tell me if this is true for you. When I'm really burnt out, when I'm at that pit, if I was really honest with myself, every single time I find myself knackered, it's because I'm not doing something the right way. Right? I'm not managing my schedule the right way. I'm not managing my money the right way. I'm not managing my family the right way. I'm not managing my time the right way. And I say things like, well, I don't have enough money to help, or I don't have enough time to go make disciples, or I don't have time to, and I, that's me. And I whine, 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 whine. But I, I cannot think, I tried when, I was, when this hit me, and I was working on this, to find a time when I, when I found myself totally burnt out where I didn't really own a piece of that. I'm, I'm prone to say I'm tired, exhausted, I'm this and that. My friend Adam's here today, Doc's son, and we were on a mission trip, and uh, it came like Friday afternoon, and he disappeared. I was like, where's he at? He's supposed to be building the wall. I got cranky. Can you imagine that? And I uh, got like, ah! And I found him. He was in his bed, curled up in his sleeping bag that every time I see him, he's got. And he's like resting, sleeping. I'm like, what's up with this? And they come to find out that he keeps the Sabbath. He keeps the Sabbath, but he keeps the Sabbath the way they used to keep the Sabbath, which means he doesn't do anything and he doesn't care if Doug's being a grump. He's not getting out of the bed or he may get out to eat, whatever. I'm not saying he just sleeps, he's lazy. I'm saying he rests. That was hard for me. I was like, wow, we're on a mission trip when the ox is in the ditch. There's always an ox in the ditch. When we were doing the 28 days of prayer recently, I told you that God convicted me. The thing I still struggle with is taking time off, stopping for a day. But there's so much. There's this, there's that. You don't have it. Yeah, yeah. And he's, he, he reminded me, like, you can hold me accountable. I don't care. Like, like, he reminded me that the reason that he sent Judah finally into captivity is because they didn't let the land rest. And that's what God said to me. If you're not resting, your staff's not resting, Nobody's resting. 
and you're responsible. Man, that's hard. We learned um, from our friend Adam and his dad, Doc, who are dear to us. And every mission trip thereafter, we started trusting God and taking a day off in the trip. And guess what happened? We did not suffer in productivity at all. It's amazing what God can do when you just trust him. He wants our bodies to rest. He wants our hearts to rest. Anyway, when I get to the point of being knackered, I can't think of a time when I don't own it. But I can think of a lot of times when I don't say I own it. And almost every time that I'm knackered is a time when I'm relying on myself instead of God. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't use the gifts and talents God gave us and do them, but I'm saying there's this weird point where we switch to autopilot and we start doing it, we start taking the credit, we start calling it ours, and we forget that he gave us the skill, the talent, and whatever the stuff is. And at that moment, it's easy to begin to make the same conceptual sin that David did. That got David in a lot of trouble. David writes this in verse 2. I cried to you for help and you healed me. This song is a record of not just what was going on and, and the discipline, but it's also a record of the resolution. In the middle of this, when David becomes self-aware, he cries out to God and says, I did this. Help me, heal me, some versions say. For me, the thing I need to learn maybe more than anything is that when I'm knackered and I cry out for help, I need to return and ask his presence to fill me, to be around me, because the point here is this, is that I can do whatever I can do, but without his presence, it's just poop. Just really, I mean, it's not going to go to the grave with me. Only when I ask him to come back in, when I ask him to unhide his face, when I recognize where I'm at, can God re-enter the equation of my faith and totally flip it around. And that flip around is an incredible thing. I, I have never, a guy named Matt Stafford wrote an article that I, I just think is the most ingenious thing I've ever seen about Psalm 30. But he writes about that flip. This is what he noticed that there were six of these little couplets, six of these little opposites in the psalm. I'm going to read some verses to you, see if you can find them, okay? It's, it, for those of you who are reading, it's verses three, five, and seven. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. You should have found one. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts for a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. You should have found two opposites. And then in verse 7, Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm, but when you hid your face, I was dismayed. Did you guys find him? Right? On our own, we go down to the pit, but with God, he brings us up. When I'm knackered, the only one who can really raise me back up from that 
is him. We already seen the diagnosis, which is I need to take a long, hard look at myself, own it, and realize that maybe all this trial in my life is God disciplining me, trying to get me what? Corrected and back on track with him. Here's the second one. His anger lasts for a what? Moment, right? But favor lasts for a lifetime. God's favor does not depart from me. It's with me for a lifetime. Even if for a moment, there's a matter of correction going on. He smiles upon me. I am his child. And when I return to him, his favor, what? Lasts for a lifetime. Here's the third one. Conviction lasts only for a night. But what comes in the morning? Joy. If you deal with your conviction, listen to me. Has anybody in the room ever just felt really guilty, terribly guilty over something you did? This. I want to see this, if you have. Yeah? Okay. Do you realize that is not at all of God? Guilt is the result of conviction not dealt with. When you wake up in the morning and you can't find joy, it's because you didn't deal with the conviction. When God convicts you and says, hey, do this or don't do this, right? Because he works both ways. He convicts you to do good and convicts you to not do wrong. It's God convincing us. And he says, hey, if you don't deal with that, it lays there and festers and becomes guilt. So if you're feeling guilty, go back and find God's word to you. Go back and find where he convicted you and act on it now. Fix it. The guilt will flee like that. It's the only way out of guilt is to go back and do what the conviction said do. And joy then comes in the morning. Here's the, the fourth one. I, I think hopefully you found it. When God what, hides his face from us, we are dismayed. But when God favors us, what? We stand firm. You see those, I thought Matt, when he wrote this, was just genius. Somehow his brain noticed these total opposites. And basically what it's this is, when I'm with God, we're good. Even in the middle of trial, we're good. I stand firm. When I'm not with God, you could give me a billion dollars and it's gonna be a bad day because I'm on my own. The final set of opposites I love actually are the solution opposites. And they're in verse 11. They says, you turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. So this one reminds me of when David sinned with Bathsheba and he mourned, he covered himself sackcloth, ashes, right? Because the baby was sick and it was gonna die. Then the baby dies and David stands up and says, okay, get cleaned up, let's go on. And they're like, now you should be mourning. He said, no. <laughs> I weeped and I prayed for God to what? Have mercy and deliver me from this trial. He didn't, we're done, let's, we gotta, it's morning, let's move on. And so the idea here is that David lasts through this punishment, this discipline from God to correct him, and when it's over, it's over. And God then does what? He takes his what? Wailing, and he turns it into what? Rejoicing, and he removes the sackcloth and clothes him with joy. No more, there's no, don't, no more pity party, David. No, you don't have to live in this your whole life. If we could learn this, it could set us free. Like, right? Because when God raises us up out of knackered, <laughs> when we realize we're trying to do this on our own, and then he comes and he starts helping us, but five years later, we're just like, oh, I was so bad, I did that. And God's like, no, that is not my desire for you. Like, you got the correction, and you fixed it. Now let's what? Move on. Boy, if this could happen in marriages. There's some knowing rooms. Yeah? 
if we would not be picking up the crap from the past and throwing at each other? Can you imagine how happy households would be? Moms do this to kids. Dads do this to kids. Parents do this to each other. Bosses, we are just into the blame game. We have not learned that when it's over, it's over. You're done. And we need to extend that kind of stuff to each other. Things we could learn from a song. Things we could learn from watching somebody else recovered from knackeredness. I made another word too. Self-knackered, knackeredness. We're going to do this forever, right? Okay. Point here is that God always comes through. God, when we turn our way back to him, he is always ready to deliver, even if we have to live through the discipline. Even if we have to live through the consequences, he is immediately there. His presence is powerful. He will protect us. When we rely on him, he resurrects us from the pit, speaking poetically. That is what he does. And there are a thousand scriptures I could read to you and I. So, the next time you feel knackered, here's your list. First, check yourself. <laughs> check yourself and see if you're self-knackered. Odds are you're going to find out that's, the, the, that's it. Two, if you're self-knackered, own it. Just own it. Just, just own it. Just go, God, I'm out here on my own. I got myself into this. I'm at the bottom. I'm burnt out. I own it. And then do what? Ask him for mercy. I'm an idiot. Clearly, I don't know what I don't know. Show me how to get out of this. If I have to live it through it, still show me mercy. Make this as least painful, if we could use that word, as possible. For ask him to fix it. Did you see where David, all through this psalm, he's saying what? Like, you fix it. Fix me. Heal me. He gets it. God can do this. And it can all be done. It can all be fixed. It can all be over. I don't know if we really believe that. But David's seen it, and you've seen it. I hope if you haven't, I pray that you will get in a healthy relationship with God. I cannot tell you how many times I've been knackered, and there was no long-term correction. That as soon as I realized it and turned to him, done. Yeah, I may have had to make some changes to my calendar. I might have had to make, listen, Amber and I have been there. And we've had a couple hard conversations. I'm like, I, I did not know you felt this way. She's like, well, I've been saying it. And I'm like, you haven't been saying it in boy language. I'm like, yeah, you may have been saying it in girl language, but not boy language. But I get it now. I get it. How do we fix this? It's a beautiful thing because then once you fix it, nobody has to live in it anymore. Ask him how to fix it and then do whatever he says. If you're totally totally knackered on finances, try being generous. Try tithing. Try getting a budget. Try stop spending. Whatever is in the book, whatever he tells you, right? If you're knackered in a relationship, give it to him. Fix it. If you're knackered in stress and everything else, man, start doing yoga. Do whatever you got to do. You're like, really? Yeah, you got to pray, okay? You got to meditate on scripture. But, you know, sometimes the body needs to stretch. Do whatever God says do. It is so much of it just written in that book we call the Bible that we think is dead, but it's really alive, full of all kinds of stories of people who got it. We can learn from them and do what they did, and people who didn't get it. If your kids hate you, if you're just knackered in the kid range, read what Paul said about stop exasperating them and only speak words to them that lift them up. Wow, what could life be like? Ask him to fix it, 
and watch God turn your knackered into joy. This is David's truth. This is a truth all throughout Scripture. That when we turn to him, he will remove the sackcloth. He will clothe us in joy. He will turn our wailing into joy. Even if we're still in the middle of correction, when that relationship's restored, we can praise him for not letting it be worse than it is. And we can praise him for showing us our errors so we don't have to repeat it. And then that's the final one, which is sing his praises. Tell the world. Like, we all want to go in the break room and t- like Facebook. Facebook is the break room of life, right? Everybody's in the break room, and they're like, how's it going? Oh, it's going good. Yeah, the kids are doing great at baseball. Whatever, right? Facebook's that way. You don't ever see, I mean, because no, they, people unfriend them. Like, if you put your real life out there, nobody wants to read that stuff. It's always like, look at the picture. What is with Thanksgiving pictures? I got like 8,000. I didn't know it was a thing. I told Amber, we're behind the times. We need to get a family photo and post it for Thanksgiving. There's like 100 of my friends who all posted. I guess photographers are making the boom. I don't know. And it's fine. They're all cute photos. But it's just like, but you know, nobody's up there take, you know, doing the selfie of the pan flying across the room. You know, they're, they're not. I think we need to be comfortable sometimes telling people, Man, I screwed up, (laughs) and he delivered me. Oh, I had to suffer through it, but he delivered me. That message we don't think resonates, but that's the one that resonates because that's the one people know is real. We need to tell the story of recovery just like the psalm tells the story of recovery. I guess the key here is this. Let God deal with your knackered. Because he wants to. He's waiting to. He has an abundant life that he wants us all to live. If you give me just like two more seconds, I really want to share with something that God put in my heart. Um, we've talked about what to do if you're knackered. I thought I would throw in how to avoid getting knackered. There's an option. How about let's just try to avoid this altogether? You've probably picked up on these truths throughout the psalm, but the way to avoid getting knackered for me is all wrapped up in one verse. It's Romans 14, 23. And what it says is this. It says, everything that does not come from faith is sin. Now, let me unpack that for you because Paul is a very confusing writer. So confusing that his peers apostles, other apostles, said, Paul is a confusing author. Nobody understands him. So let's just unpack it. What that says is this. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. So let's just put it a different way and say this. Everything that you're not sure, because that's what faith is, everything you're not sure that God wants you to do, but you do it anyway, is sin. Why? Because following God means I hear what God says or I see what God wants me to do and then I go and I do it. I I know this is what he wants me to do. I have faith this is what he wants me to do and I do it. Anything that I do, even if it's good, that I'm not sure that God wants me to do, I'm not actually following him at that point. Who am I following? Me. I'm following me. This is the exact way that David got knackered. This is how we all get knackered. Because we do it our way. And what this says is this. Anytime that you're not absolutely sure that you're following God, 
You're not. <laughs> okay, so if you're sitting out there and you're kind of like, wow, you just made me feel bad. I, I want to help you feel better. You need to like not look at the past and just look forward. You can't do anything about this except talk to God and recognize maybe I got knackered and I own it. What we're talking about now is just avoiding it in the future. So don't think about this. Just think about this, the future. What would tomorrow be like if tomorrow you only did the things you were sure God wanted you to do? How's that work at work? Well, I only say and respond in the things that God would, okay? But he's made me a business person. He's made me, personally, a decision scientist. There's a lot I know. Does that mean I still can't pray? Does that mean I still can't listen? In fact, I have a testimony that I give to business people that says I have like a 98-point-something percent success as a decision scientist. That means solving other people's problems, right, business and likewise. And they go, how do you have that? And I tell them, I cheat. I totally cheat. I pray. And I read my Bible. I've learned so much about people and life. I have a lot of data. There is a very structured science of decision science that I apply. But I apply it with prayer and I apply it with the wisdom from the Bible. And it has led me to solve more things that I should never have been able to solve. Because I do it with him. What would our day be like if we only did what he wanted us to do. Charles Sheldon wrote that book, right? In His Steps. Many of you read it. It's a story of a pastor who has this terrible moment where he realizes that they just don't care about the poor and the lost. And he asks himself, what would Jesus have done with this guy who was homeless who needed to be taken care of and we didn't do it or and it begins to infect his whole community. It's a, it's a work of fiction, but it's incredible. If you haven't read the book, you surely have seen the bracelets or something, the what would Jesus do that seems so cheesy. But that was the question he asked his congregation, what would Jesus do? It's same, kind of that same thing, but just for you. What would your day look like tomorrow if the only things you did and said were the things that God would want for you to do and say? And some of you are sitting out there saying, again, well, you've just made my day bad because I have no clue. So let me just see if I can set you free on that. You're not alone. You're never alone. <clears throat> if you're a Christian, you get that whole book called the Bible. You believe in it. God wrote it, right? What would happen tomorrow if you said, you know, you know God, am I keeping the Sabbath? Am I given a day of rest? Am I handling my finances the way I should? Am I handling my relationships the way I should? Am I, have I even thought about ever studying about relationships between a man and a woman so I can be better at being a man or a woman, whatever you are, right? What, what, it, what would it be like if we said, God, how do you want me to be married? How do you want me to be in this relationship? I have another friend. He's incredible. He's the best salesman I've ever met, but his sales got even better. His company kept giving him garbage contracts because they were trying to get him to quit, and he kept turning them into million-dollar deals. And they are like, how do you do that? He said, you don't want my answer. He finally told him. I went into discipleship. I learned more about God. I started applying his principles, and I pray for my team. And they didn't like the answer. 
and he kept turning losers into million-dollar deals. I'm not saying that God's jack-in-the-box and it's always rosy. I'm just telling you that he says, I was reading in Proverbs this morning. I'm just reading through Proverbs. It's my thing I'm doing right now. Wisdom brings profit. Do we really believe what the things that God says? If you're not a Christian, if you've never been a follower, I just wonder what it would be like. Like, what are you missing? If you're not following God, what amazing life could you be missing? Like, what if all the circumstances you're in are just God's gentle correction trying to get your attention? What if he's just pecking on the shell trying to say, hey, wake up. There's a better way. What if, you're, what if you didn't have to do this all on your own? What if God is God? What if the Holy Spirit could live in you and could inspire you and fill you and, and teach you and cause you to make better choices? What if you could actually know what God really wants you to do? And I don't mean that like serving him. I mean, who, of course we'll serve him, but I mean, like God says he wants us to have an abundant life. And he gives us instructions to have that abundant life. What would your, if you're not a follower, can you imagine? What would your life be like if you knew how to turn your life around to get it out of the pit and up into heaven to, to kill the knackeredness? Anyway, if you guys, um, any of you, wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, need help, I know people, and I'm here but I'm more than happy to show you what I know about dealing with my own knackeredness. Gosh, knows I've got some experience, and there's a whole book here written for us. And if you've got a knackered problem that I don't know how to deal with, I promise you, I know somebody who does. This place is full of misfit toys. One of the beauties I love about Three Taverns is it's just transparent, real people who are broken, honest, all working together to try to find a better life, and that's found in following him. So, yeah, if... If you're, uh, if you're knackered, you might want to take a look at yourself and see if, you, if you're there on your own. If so, own it and ask him for mercy. Ask him to help. Ask him to fix it and then let him endure the discipline with a smile. But if, you're, if, you, if you don't even know if you're knackered, you're just, you don't even know God. And there's no conviction. You're just out there. Can you imagine what if God could turn that around for you? And to me, that's the, the message that Psalm 30, this beautiful song that David wrote, says... There's a way back, and there's a way to beauty. God bless you.